0: Um, so what we're going to do tonight is we are going to talk about um, what it means to be a man. Um, and if you're just joining us for the first time tonight, uh, we've been doing a series on relationships this semester. Often what we do is I'll, I'll teach from a book through a book from the Bible, but this semester we're doing a series on relationships. And tonight we're going to be talking about um, what does it mean to be a man. So... Um, Last year, there was an article in the New York Times written by Kim Severson, and the title of the article is this, Suicide Growing in High-Pressure Chef Culture. And it tells the story of uh, Benoit Voliere, who was a chef whose restaurant was ranked the top restaurant in the world in 2016. And then two months later, he took his own life. And... um, In response to this, uh, the the author of this article talked to a friend of his and asked him about the pressure of being a chef. And he said this. He said, people are quite macho in the industry. He said, people don't feel they can really talk about their problems or the stresses of of what's being asked of them. And he adds, it's considered a sign of weakness if you complain. And that is intensified the higher and higher you go in the world of chefs. And so this is a particular take on what it means to be a real man, right? We've got this, this vision that's given to us, this image of being a macho, right? Don't be, um, don't be vulnerable, show no weakness. And yet we see, not just in this example, but in lots of examples, that the effects of that are disastrous. And in response to this sort of traditional macho version of masculinity, some contend that men and women are the same. This is like a reaction to that. Some men and women are in the same and that our distinctions are purely biological, and yet that perspective leads many to feel misunderstood. So what I want to do tonight is I actually want to propose an alternative to that. What if the Bible has something to say that's different than what our culture and our media says? Tonight I'm going to try to answer this question. What does it look like for a man to respond to the gospel and to follow Jesus? What does it look like for a man to be sanctified, to, be, to look more and more like Jesus as he repents of his sin and trusts in Christ? So I said earlier, we're we're doing this series on relationships this semester. And as we read through Genesis 1 and 2 together, we saw that humans are created in God's image. Um, And we saw that in this, God created a male and female. And that um, it requires both male and female to image God. And so what we're going to look at the next two weeks is we're going to look at how the Bible gives us models um, for what it means to be a Christian man. And also uh, models for what it means to be a Christian woman. So, um, men this week, women next week. Women, please don't check out this week. And men, come back next week. It's worth coming back to listen. Um, And the reason for this is, women, we need your help. Um, We can't do what's called of us on our own. We need your help. We need your help to be the men that God calls us to be. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Timothy together uh, to be a guide for us um, for life as Christian men, um, I want to say special thanks to two pastors who helped me with this Justin Clement and Les Newsom. Um, so if you would turn over your bulletin, it's printed there. Um, we're going to read first Timothy one, 15 through 16 and chapter three, verses one through seven. This is God's word for us tonight. It's completely true. And he gives it to us in love. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's pray. Father, I uh, pray that you'd help us now as we um, read and, and think together that you would um, attend to us uh, and show us Christ in this. Um, help us, we pray in his name. Amen. Um, So the journey of a Christian, the journey of the Christian life is the movement from you being the center of the universe to God being the center of your universe. Um, The Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a perpetual self-displacement. Because the Christian gospel proclaims that God is king, not me. And so in doing this, Christianity actually provides an upside-down vision for human flourishing. The world tells us me first, right? The world tells you that it's all about your resume. Everyone and everything is useful to you to your own self-advancement. Everything is a stepping stone. Everyone is a stepping stone. But Jesus' vision for human flourishing turns this upside down. Um, He said that in his kingdom, that the first will be last and the last will be first. He says that uh, whoever wants to be great would first have to be a servant. And then the Apostle Paul, as he's talking about this, um, he talks about how in his letter to the church, and Philippi, how Jesus, who was equal to God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant. He writes to the church in Corinth that Jesus, was, who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And so what this means in this upside-down vision of human flourishing is that Jesus will transform your view of everything, Your money, your body, your friends, your career. And as we're going to look at tonight, it will transform what it means to be a man. And as we look at 1 Timothy 3, um, what Paul paints for us here is requirements for pastors. You might have heard that word, overseer. Um, And this is a Greek word that we've translated as bishop or pastor. And um, it's someone who's who's given charge of the church, who's been entrusted with leading and caring for the church. And what Paul's doing here is he's giving Timothy instructions on how to select men to lead the church. But also what he's doing, he's presenting an exemplary picture of the Christian man. And we do this all the time, right? We we lift up moral exemplars to help us make sense of how to live. Like whether it be in sports, right, we look to LeBron James or Steph Curry um, as these, these exemplars of basketball athleticism, or in, in music. Um, We want to write songs like Scott Avitt. Or maybe some of you want to write songs like Scott Avitt. Some of you want to write music like Justin Timberlake. I don't know. I'm trying to think of musical things that you guys aspire to. I don't know if that's what you aspire to. Uh, You get what I mean, right? Uh, In business, like there's these business exemplars to innovate and lead like – like Steve Jobs, right? These, these people who are lifted up as this is what it means to be at the top of this field, this career, um, this way of life. And this is what Paul's doing here. He's, he's holding out the overseer as the Christian exemplar for men. And as we look at this together, I want us to see three things that he says here. Um, he talks about strength, and he talks about purpose, and he talks about competency. So first, real strength comes through dependence. Comes through Dependency. So the masculinity that's offered to you in our culture is one of independent achievement. You are a man, it will tell you because of what you've accomplished, because of what you've achieved. It will ask you, what have you done with your life? The image that used to be uh, for this was the image of the cowboy. Um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to have seen these old Marlboro ads where it's like this lone ranger cowboy smoking a pack of Marlboro Reds. Um, on the frontier, alone um, weathered man like this was the image of masculinity uh, that I grew up with um, and then it's kind of transformed right um, in the like 80s and 90s we had Rambo as the image of the man who like goes and Rambo I think it's Rambo three or four he goes to Afghanistan and like ends the Cold War on his own like this is the image of masculinity right that you can go on your own after like 15 years in the gym and a lot of steroids and go and end. The Cold War on your own because you're Rambo. Um, And we hold up these images of men who achieve everything on their own. And we say, that's real strength, right? That's what it means to be a man. And I know you feel this pressure. I mean, we've talked about this together. Whether it's uh, the pressure now to develop your brand, which is a thing, or just to achieve to the highest level in whatever field you are that you can. right? The pressure to get the A's, to get that internship, to get into that grad school, All right, we've been told that real strength comes through what you achieve. What you achieve in the classroom now and in the boardroom later. What you achieve in the gym, what you achieve at the party, what you achieve in the bedroom. All right, this is what we're fed, that strength comes through achievement. And this is not Christianity. The gospel tells you that you are a man because God has made you male in his image. You were created to receive your self-worth and identity in God alone and not to create it for yourself. Right? As men, our identity is not found in being macho or stoic or tough. It doesn't come through landing the right job or getting into the right grad school. But the secure identity that you long for, the one that you were created for, comes from dependency on Jesus. And we see this in 1 Timothy 1 where Paul, who is like the head pastor, um is reminding Timothy, this younger pastor, reminding him of his great dependency on Jesus. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Like of all the sinners in the world, I am the foremost. Is this boldness to say this. I mean, we have these words recorded 2,000 years later. Like this is what he, this is how he is known to us, that he said this, I am the chief sinner. And he wrote this towards the end of his life, which means that he was actually able to look back over his life um, with a confidence that God actually loved him, that his sins are actually forgiven in Christ. And this freed him to be honest. Honest about how ugly his sin actually is. Honest about how much he needs Jesus. And I know this looks like weakness to us, but it's really strength. Right? Because he doesn't have to put up a front. He is confident of God's love for him. He's dependent on God's love. Nothing can tear him down. So what sort of difference does dependency make? Well, every man here in this room is insecure, myself included. All of us. We're insecure that we're not smart enough. We're insecure that we're not strong enough. We're insecure that we're not cool enough. We're not put together enough. And where does this insecurity come from? It comes from this treadmill that we're on, this ceaseless effort to be independent, to figure out who we are based on our accomplishments, to create some sort of identity for yourself that works. This insecurity comes from trying to find your identity independent of God. But the security that you long for, the strength that you desire as a man, actually comes through dependency on Christ. Men, you are never stronger than when you are needy for your Heavenly Father. And until you begin to measure your strength as a man by measuring your dependency on Jesus, you will always be grasping. You will always be on that treadmill. Always not strong enough, always not cool enough, Always not smart enough. Always not put together enough. And ladies, a question for you. um, When you are looking for a guy, are you looking for a man who is finding his identity in God and in his love? So we see that strength comes through dependency and that real purpose comes through stewardship. Real purpose comes through stewardship. See, men, we long to be about something bigger than ourselves. We crave purpose. This is the plot of like every action movie, right? The main character is in retirement. He's just written his resignation letter. He's done with the action. He's ready to settle down and be a family man. then what happens, right? Something big has happened and they come and tell him he's the only one that can handle the job. So he has to go out for one last mission, something that only he can handle. I mean, like this is in every, this is like every movie, right? It's Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. Right, he's retired as a bonsai guy and he comes back. Um, Liam Neeson and Taken, right, he's retired and then he has a special set of skills and he comes back. Chubbs and Happy Gilmore, that you can see that coming. <laughs> right, alligator bit his hand off, he was done for golf, but then they needed Happy needed to come back and um, and help him out. So so the reason why this is the plot for so many movies is because it taps into something deep within us. Right? We have this longing to be about something bigger than us. We have this longing to be a part of some greater purpose. And as Christians, we're told that our purpose is to make Jesus famous throughout the earth. Everything we have exists for that. You know, you were created for so much more than your own happiness, which is what the American dream sells you. The American dream tells you to pursue your own kingdom. But God's vision for you is so much bigger than that. It's to be a steward of everything that God has given you for his glory. Steward is a word, um, it's it's somebody who is responsible to take care of something. So as Christians, we are stewards of of the resources God gives us for serving other humans. Stewardship is the cultivation of our resources for God. I want you to look at a couple of verses with me in chapter 3, um, specifically verses 2 and 7, where Paul writes um, that, that um, men, these overseers, are to be self controlled and respectable, hospitable, not violent, but gentle, um, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And then in verse 7, um, he tells them that they are to be well thought of by outsiders. Who are these virtues for? Right? Who, is, who is all this for? Paul is calling the men in the church to steward their very lives so that the gospel would be made known to the world. Everything we have is to be leveraged so that God might receive glory in our lives as we pour out our lives for the sake of the world. And much of our complacency as men is because we set the bar too low. We set the bar too low for ourselves and we set the bar too low for each other. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis on the front of your bulletin. Um, It says this, C.S. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So men, you need to ask yourselves, what drives you? What drives you? What is your life going to be about? We are far too easily satisfied. This is why so many men are bored. Like, you're bored with church, you're bored with campus ministries, you're bored with your own lives, because they, we, I, um, have set the bar too low, far too low. Um, I have this little question and answer I do with Leo, our son. And I ask him, um, Leo, why did God make you strong? Why did God make you fast? Why did God make you smart? He doesn't really like doing this with me, but I love doing this with him. Why did God make you strong? Why did God make you smart? Why did God make you fast? Um, And the answer is to glorify God and to love others, because this is the only vision that can sustain him, right? Anything else is not going to be enough to sustain him. Guys, God has given you incredible gifts. And specifically, you in this room, um, you are an amazing group of men, right? As I've gotten to know you, I've seen your talents and your strengths, your intelligence, your charisma, your relationships. These are all gifts that God has given you to steward for his glory, As you bring healing and wholeness to our fractured and broken world. So go. Go be doctors. Go be lawyers. Go be professors and businessmen and fathers and husbands and accountants and teachers and pastors and psychologists. But not for your own gain. Not for your own comfort. With a different purpose. To make the world beautiful and to make the world just. To care for widows and orphans. To give justice to the oppressed and marginalized. Many of you... um, many years from now, will have far more money than you know what to do with. And you have a choice. You will either chase the world of comfort and prestige, or you can leverage that. You can steward your lives for the sake of Christ and the poor. I have a friend who's in his late 30s who says that he's currently watching two groups of his friends. Um, One set of his friends is chasing the world of Range Rovers and comfort, and the other set of friends who make the same amount of money are investing in the poor and investing in missions and in education and local medical, medical care. The question for you is, where's the glory? Like, as you set the course of your lives as men, where is the glory? Where are you going to set your, um, set your vision to go? And ladies, um, for you, when you encourage your dads and your brothers and your friends and your boyfriends in this calling, um, they will move towards it with hope and confidence. So real strength comes through dependency, real purpose comes through stewardship, and finally, real competency comes through character. So our culture tells us that competency comes through mastery, right? mastering a certain set of skills. Um, Do you have the right skills? Can you look the part? Do you have what it takes? And following Jesus is a movement from external competency to internal character. Character is who we are when no one is looking. And developing real character takes a lot of practice. So often we define what Christian men are supposed to be by what they don't do. Rather than what they do or they possess. And that's how Paul talks about it here. That he frames it in this positive life. Look how Paul talks about what Christian men are to be like. I'm just going to look at a couple of these in verses 2 through 5. The first is in verse 2 and 3. He says that men are to be self-controlled. This means that we are to control ourselves and how we talk about women. Control ourselves in how we talk about people who are different than us. How we relate to food and alcohol. So a question for you men is, do you control your appetites? Do you control yourself or do you abandon yourself to whatever whim you have? Second, in verse 2, we see that a Christian man is one who pursues sexual pu- pu- purity. Sexual purity. Here it says, um, faithful to his wife. Literally in the Greek, it is a one-woman man um, and so for, for you, the question is, how are you thinking about, talking about, and viewing women? Ladies, does your boyfriend protect your purity, or does he see what he can get? Fellas, for you, um, are you looking at porn? And are you confessing it to someone, or are you hiding it? And I know the shame that is wrapped up in pornography. I know that what it's like to have a hold on you. And I know for some of you, it, you've, you've had a hold on you since you were 10 or 12 Um, I know that you've had an iPhone in your pocket for at least a couple of years that has given you unfettered secret access to it. And I want you to know that there's real healing in Jesus by his spirit. You don't have to live in the prison of pornography. Tell someone who loves you. Tell me, um, let's go to Jesus together with this. Um, He longs to forgive you. He longs to heal you. He has died for your purity. Also in verse 2, we see the call is to be hospitable. And the Greek word here is xenophilia, which is um, the opposite of the word xenophobia, right? Xeno means stranger, phobia means fear. So the opposite of a fear of strangers is a love of strangers. And in an age where we have a growing, uh, this increasingly growing xenophobia, where we define our neighbor as our enemy, Christ calls us to love our neighbor, to befriend the stranger, So men, let me ask you, how do you treat those who are different than you? How do you treat the cleaning staff, the pit workers? Do you have relationships with people who are different? Or do all your friends look like you? Do you only hang out with other Christians? Real men are good friends, especially to strangers. A real man is always doing good deeds when no no one's looking. And this is true because um, when we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So we can't look down on the poor and the outsiders the way we used to, because Jesus gave up his riches and became poor for our sake, so that we might be those who sacrifice for others. And then in verse 3, see that men are called to be not violent, but gentle. One of the beautiful things about the way that God has created men is that our strength is displayed through our gentleness. I have this wonderful memory of being a child in my living room and wrestling with my dad. I was probably four or five. And just remembering how strong he was. He could get down on all fours and I could climb all over him and like do knee drops on his back. I'm now learning this as the dad side of it, getting knee drops on my back for my children. But this, um, how strong my father was and yet how gentle he was. Right? That His strength wasn't used for violence but it was used um, and displayed in gentleness. That's what Paul's saying here: is that the strength that God has given you as a man is to be used, not in violence, but in gentleness. So, ladies, this means if he hits you ever, or he has a temper, run away. Um, don't stay with him. And then in verse two, we th- we see um, he is able to teach. Um, And now while in 1 Timothy 3, this is in reference specifically to those who are called overseers or pastors, this principle can be applied to all Christian men. So the question is, can you articulate the gospel? Could you explain to a curious friend why it was that Jesus had to die? Why it was that Jesus had to rise from the dead? And finally, we see um, in verse 7 that um, a man can be seen for what he is. A man can be seen for what he is. If a man does not appear to be godly, he probably isn't. This is what verse 7 is saying, a good reputation with outsiders. Both those inside and outside the Christian faith can observe this. And here's the thing. Um, As a man, you are going to be committed to improving yourself. Whether it's working out or learning a foreign language or picking up a hobby, which all of these are great things. But the question is, are you competent in the area of life that your heavenly father truly cares about? Your character. Now, at this point in the sermon, um, men, you should be crushed by what I've said. If you're not incredibly burdened by what I've said, then you probably weren't listening very closely or you don't know yourself very well. Because on your own, you cannot live up to this list. You don't have the strength to be fully dependent on God. You don't have the single-mindedness to see your life as one of stewardship. And this list of virtues I just read, it just shreds us. We don't have this character 100% of the time. And this is because you cannot do this on your own. You cannot, be, you cannot become who you were designed to be on your own. It takes a lot of practice. You need help from other men. And becoming real men ultimately means looking to the true real man, Jesus. So look at Jesus. Look at Jesus who was dependent on the approval of his father 24-7. Even when he was rejected and he was alone and he was poor and tempted. Even when the world saw him as a failure, he was still dependent. He's a man who stewarded his father's vision, even when it cost him his own life, when it involved sharing that vision with disciples who had abandoned him. And he was a man of character who was tempted in every way and never sinned. Jesus was tempted sexually, was tempted by selfishness and anger and materialism and cockiness, and he never gave in. See, Jesus came not only to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve, giving us both the forgiveness of sins And his righteousness before the Father, but Jesus came to shape us into his image, to become more and more like him. And this is the work of sanctification that he does in us by his Spirit. So, in closing, I just want to leave you guys with a question Um, What kind of man are you becoming? What kind of man are you becoming? And what kind of man do you want to become? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you for how you've made us, uh, male and female in your image. And we thank you for giving us clear words in um, your word about uh, what it means to be a man. Lord, and I pray for my friends here tonight that um, as they have heard this, that they would look to you, Jesus, the, the true man, the one who um, is perfect on our behalf. Um, that we might see you um, good and glorious for us. Uh, we pray in your name. Amen y'all want to stand, we're going to sing one more song.